Hello, this is the Organic BC Podcast, and I'm Jordan Marr, an organic corn grower from the Okanagan Valley and the show's current host. What you're about to listen to is a re-release of an episode originally produced for the 2022 BC Organic Conference. I hope you enjoy it. Your guest interviewer for this episode is Michelle Tsutsumi, an organic farmer at Golden Ears Farm in Chase and your 2022 BC Organic Conference Coordinator. When asked who she would like to interview, Michelle identified Sarah Mock as her guest of choice. Sarah is the author of Farm and Other F-Words and a forthcoming book in 2022 that will focus on a big team approach to farming. In this conversation, Michelle and Sarah discuss that approach, as well as some lesser acknowledged motivations for land ownership and for farming that exacerbate the challenges of producing food profitably and sustainably. We'll start with some quick biographies, and then Michelle picks up the conversation. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll talk to you in a bit. Hello, my name is Michelle Sitsumi. I'm a small-scale organic farmer with Golden Ears Farm, which is on the unceded territory of Shikwekmagulu, close to the village of Chase. I'm also the 2022 conference coordinator for Organic BC and the coordinator for the first ever agriculture and food co-op conference with the BC Co-op Association. Hello, I'm Sarah Mock. Uh, I am a freelance agriculture and rural issues writer and researcher and the author of a book called Farm and Other F-Words. So Sarah, I thought I'd start off just providing a brief overview. I loved your book. Uh, I read Farm and Other F-Words in a day or so, I would say. It was a page turner. And what really resonated with me was how you expressed the reality of small family farms rather than the romanticized ideal um, that is really embedded in our subconscious. And um, you really highlighted the points of our dominant culture that place farmers on a pedestal. Um, It's a noble livelihood. Um, It's rooted in passion, not profit. And you helped put, put a name to a lot of the things that are unspoken, sort of the shadowy side. And, and I think we're in a time where that's really needed. Um, so some of the things that you put a name to that I think people in agriculture need to hear is like highlighting the depth of land wealth that is held in agriculture, that land used in agriculture was stolen and contributed to genocide, that labor to support agriculture was and still is exploited that agriculture is propped up with off-farm income and or intergenerational wealth. Uh, I was just listening to your podcast from Female Farmer Project that came out last week, I think, and you really named a couple of other pieces to that intergenerational wealth. It's more than land and money. There's knowledge, relationships, how embedded in the community um, the the landholders and the farmers are, and I think that needs to be recognized. So in essence, from your book, um, it really spoke to me about how agriculture, as we know it in North America, needs an overhaul. (laughs) And um, I'm hoping that today we can focus on the concept that you described as big team farming. And it's something that fits with farming in the landscape in BC. There's quite a few new entrants. Um, There are folks who are successioning their farm, um, retiring and needing 
needing someone to take on the farm. Um, so let's dive in and discuss how the system can be interrogated, disrupted, and transformed. Um, so to start off, it's actually sort of jumping off from a conversation that you had in a Civil Eats interview in August. And you make a statement that food production agriculture is one of the least lucrative things that you can do on land. Um, and I think that illustrates the complexity of farming. And I'm curious how you reconcile this statement with the encouragement to shift to big team farming. Like how does big team farming support more people in a living wage kind of way when production agriculture struggles to make money or doesn't make money? Totally. Well, first of all, Michelle, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Um, I think in terms of, you know, uses of agricultural land, uh, you know, the argument around what is the best use of land or best is a really loaded word. So let's say let's use I use the word most lucrative. I think that is like how a lot of people make land use decisions, whether or not we want to reckon with that. Um, and yeah, I mean, agricultural land is a great way to hold hold wealth and minimize your tax burden on it. It's a great way to create losses to limit tax burden uh, that you might receive from outs other outside of sources of income. Um, it's a good way to pass wealth from generation to generation while limiting the tax burden. There's just so many different ways that ag land can play a role in um, tax avoidance. And I think we, I mean, one, because taxes, frankly, are boring. Talking about the tax code and the tax system, you know, I don't think accountants <laughs> as a group of people have a reputation for being terribly exciting and having a terribly exciting job. Uh, no knocks on accountants, they're very fun. Um, but I think that because of it's hard to get people uh, interested in exploring what exactly, you know, our tax code means for agriculture, we've just left it kind of unexplored. You know, I think we talk a lot in agriculture, especially in the U.S., about the subsidy system, which certainly there is a very big, bold, direct payment, indirect payment, subsidization of insurance program out there that's that's creating some of the problems we see in agriculture. But arguably, the benefits that you can get from in terms of tax avoidance are, are factors larger than what you can get in terms of direct payments. Uh, in terms of protecting wealth over time. So, you know, I think uh, in making that argument that that actually growing food and actually trying to make a profit from production is one of the least lucrative things you could do, it's because it's more lucrative to use farmland to avoid taxes, to just as an investment vehicle, because farmland, you know, at the moment where just a few weeks ago, uh, an acre of land in Illinois sold for $26,000 an acre, you know, we're seeing that some of the highest land values ever recorded. Um, land is a terribly lucrative asset class. It outperformed the S&P 500 four out of the last five decades. Um, so even if you just like have some money and you want a good return, buying ag land is a good option. That's why Bill Gates owns more farmland than anyone in America. Um, and then also using land as a way to access federal programs, uh, especially amongst commodity grain growers, that's pretty lucrative. And then right there at the bottom of the list in terms of lucrative uses of land is you know, actually creating a product that you sell to feed people, um, which is a real challenge. And I think something that we don't talk about or look at and creates, you know, so many of those problems around, you know, we encourage 
young people, beginning farmers, people who are interested in feeding communities and being part of, you know, a system of maybe regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture, that, it, you know, if they can just find some land, if they can rent land, if they can gain access, however, then they can, you know, build a business growing food. But all the numbers suggest that that's not true, that, that, that they're going to be competing against these people who have different motivations that have nothing to do with growing food. Um, so I think that is something that we need to think more about. And to your question about uh, the second part of this question about big team farms, um, all of those things in my mind, the challenge is that changing policy around the way the tax code works or changing policy around the way our subsidy systems work is, is something we've been talking about for decades and have made no progress on, just none at all just nothing. You can't really give people money and then stop giving them money. Uh, we, that, which is true, not just in agriculture, but, you know, kind of across the economy when it comes to policymaking. So, you know, I think I point to the fact that that's because policy doesn't lead, it follows. I, the way that our policy system works in the U.S. right now, at least, is that the industries who participate in the industry or in a sector have the heaviest hand in shaping the policy. So to be able to start having a conversation about changing those um, tax system, tax regimes, or changing the, the subsidy regimes, we'd first have to have some kind of viable alternative. We'd first have to have a, a business or a set of businesses that can stand, that can create opposition to, you know, the current sector. Uh, and in my mind, I think the, the most transformative option out there that seems to be working, at least in some ways, in some senses at some times, is just like farms that act like food businesses, farms that act, uh, that kind of use entrepreneurial tools that have advisors, that use financing, that hire, you know, complex, um, that hire teams that have unique skills in marketing, in logistics, in sales, in um, business development. And to me, that is what kind of, in essence, a big team farm is, is just a farm where the responsibility for all of those diverse jobs in a farm don't fall, fall exclusively onto one person or to a couple. Um, so yeah, so that is, I think, if we want to start talking about more like changing the way that that land is valued and having, uh, you know, making food a more lucrative way to use farmland, I think the first step to doing that is having an alternative because and all those policy, you know, around all those policy questions, I don't think anything's going to meaningfully change until there's, you know, someone with, for better or worse, like money to sit at the table and fight for something different. Mm -hmm. As you describe the big team concept, I sigh a huge sigh of relief because um, usually in the small family farms, all of those tasks and roles are carried by one or two people. And it's, it's really hard to do that. That's a big burden. It's a big drain on energy and time. Plus you're doing things that you don't really like or <laughs> enjoy totally. doing. Um, well, and, and I think to add to that, you know, I think it has also created such a toxic world for people who are interested and excited about agriculture, where they come into it thinking like, hey, I love putting my hands in the dirt. I love working with livestock. I love, you know, growing trees or growing fruit and vegetables or serving customers. And now I, and like no one really made it clear how much of this job is actually marketing or logistics or accounting. And I'm failing 
or I'm, you know, it's, it's too much. It's too, I can't work a hundred hours a week or, you know, I just can't marshal the capital or I don't have time to do the fundraising or like whatever the various challenges are. They're almost infinite. And at the end of that experience, I think when a lot of people end up leaving agriculture, they feel like it was a personal failure. Like if they had just worked harder, then it, then it could have worked out like, like this, like the system works. They just failed to be good enough to make it work. And that's just not the case. You wouldn't look at, you know, any other company in any other part of our economy really and think like, oh, one person couldn't be the the manager, the CEO and all the employees and everything and do it all by themselves and put that weight on their whole family that they failed. Like, no, that's a really incredible burden. And it just like, it really doesn't make sense that that is the expectation for farms. Definitely. It seems like that's part of the myth busting as well around small family farms. They don't have to do everything, expand that out, allow people who whose expertise is in a certain area to do that. And transitioning to big team farming doesn't need to be like everyone full time. It's people coming in for the time that's needed to get something going, a system in place. Um, I'm curious if through your time with this material, if you've synthesized sort of a definition of big team farming or a way to describe it. Yeah, that is a challenge that I go back and forth on a lot because I think part of it is just is that it's it's an incredibly broad scope. I mean, I think part of the thing that I don't like about the small family farm ideal is that it is pretty narrow. It, it suggests that there's like one, a one size fits all, which is small and family. <laughs> uh, and, and I just don't, I just don't believe that that's how solutions work. Solutions are diverse and complex and unique to geographies and to crop mixes and to customers and to opportunities. And so I think big team farms can look a lot of different ways in a lot of different places, but in general, um, I've described big team farms as farms that rather than, you know, I think when we look at motivation, small family farms often have a key motivator spoken or unspoken, um, as holding land and holding wealth privately. That's why it's important that it's a family, right? Because that the wealth needs to be held within the family to facilitate intergenerational transfer. So, you know, I think one of the challenges there, you know, I hear folks saying, you know, we're, I had a conversation with a farmer recently who was talking about, you know, I own 200 acres in Maryland. I'm having a really hard time. I can't make the money work. I can't make the finance work. I'd like to explore other options and figure out how I can bring more, more workers in and make people feel more a part of this business. But, you know, I have a one and a three-year-old and I also want to make sure that they can inherit this land. And it's like, okay, you want them to inherit a business that isn't working is what you're saying. And also they're one in three. Like no concept of like that they they might not want to farm that like there are people that want to work on your farm right now who are like, you know, in their 20s, in their 30s of an age to actually be able to make some of those decisions. And you are instead like trying to prepare a business so that 30 years from now it, it there's like an opportunity open for, you know, to to define ownership. That's not how business building works. Business building is is on a usually on a bit of a shorter time horizon than that, and is about you know pursuing market opportunities, serving customers, finding good product market fit, um, making sure that like you can manage as resources change. Right, like part of the 
light insanity to me of, of trying to make sure that land can be inherited by someone in like 30 years is that like with climate change, we literally don't know what that land is going to look like in 30 years or whether it's even going to be worth having or like, you know, whether it's going to be farmable, whether it's going to be viable in terms of, you know, having a livelihood or even in terms of like living on safely. Uh, so if, if the small family farm, part of their motivation is holding land within a family, part of their motivation is, um, you know, transferring intergenerational wealth. And part of the, the motivation is, is being small, is operating on, you know, a small scale that where most of the work can be done by one or two people. That is not something that can, you know, in terms of goals that I like to think of for our food system and for farms in particular, you know, I think when we look at how we want businesses to operate and what we would like them to be pursuing, um, I think what we would like a farm to pursue is, you know, delivering, like providing healthy, affordable food, not, you know, exploiting people while they do that and not destroying the environment while they do that. And when we like have those three motivations, like one, that is just not the motivations that most small family farms are see, are pursuing. That's just not what our, how our agricultural system has been put together. And it's not the best probably model to achieve those goals, right? Like we know that scale because of the, like when we go to the grocery store, generally the food that's in there is not created by a small family farm, right? It's, it's created by an organization that works at a, a bit of a larger scale. That's how we have bananas in our grocery stores all over America in December, um, but also other fruits and vegetables and food that is, you know, arrives within hours of uh, when it comes from processing somewhere. So I think for me, the definition of a big team farm is a, is a farm that is, you know, pursuing those three goals primarily, who is, you know, part of not exploiting your workers, which I think is challenging, especially for people who have come into the small family farm mindset, just like realizing that you shouldn't be like, you can exploit your own labor, right? Like assuming that you can do all the jobs and that like, Ooh, and what it takes for you to do all the jobs on the farm is for you to work a hundred hours a week. I know farmers who regularly work a hundred hours a week and don't draw any salary. That is exploit labor exploitation. Like that is a bad deal. That is not how your farm should be operating. That is not how any business should be operating. As a matter of fact, it's arguably not operating as a business, if that's the case. And so I think, um, yeah, so big team farms, you know, thinking about labor exploitation, thinking about how, you know, are we making enough money to pay people? And if we're not making enough money to pay people, how are we changing our business? How are we leveraging our assets? How are we, you know, reaching customers in, in new and unique ways that actually allow us to make enough money to support our employees? to not destroy the environment while we're doing that. And then to, in the end, also be delivering, you know, not just not just $40 pasture-raised chickens or like $8 eggplants, but also food that is accessible and affordable and, and good for people. So it's really hard to balance all those things. But in general, I think that's what I'm looking for when I'm out in the world trying to track down people who are doing the big team farm thing, which there are people who are doing it already, which is cool. Yeah, it sounds like such a mindset shift, like the the long-held values and belief of small family farm holding on to the land to for inheritance. Um, 
that's a hard one to shift. And it is tied in with that unpaid labor <laughs> and shifting that to needing to be able to make a living wage. Um, the big team farming as a process seems to encompass being able to be iterative, like dealing with things as they're happening. It's a bit more responsive um, and that that takes time and energy for people to get to that place psychologically. Definitely. And I would say, I mean, this is where we come back to the idea of it is big team farms, especially people who are successfully implementing, like I will call them big team farm values in their businesses right now. Every single one of them looks different. Um, you know, I think when I first started talking about big team farms, a lot of people got really un uncomfortable and were like, oh my gosh, you're talking about collectivism. You're talking about like communism, basically. You're talking about giving all the monies to the workers and then no one will own anything and it'll all fall apart and it'll be super inefficient and no one will do anything which is one no not that is a very oversimplified argument and like there's lots of historical it, moments to negate that but also for folks who are interested in doing and kind of pursuing some of these values you do not have to collectivize your farm today there's lots of little steps you can make along the way. I love to talk about a, a farmer that I know in North Carolina who wanted to open up a, a processing plant to increase kind of, there was a problem with regional processing capacity. So he wanted to open a, a slaughter plant and he was worried about labor because he knew his business wasn't gonna work if he had to, you know, as other processing plants nearby had a problem with a really big problem with turnover. He knew he couldn't afford to pay people 25, 30, $40 an hour probably, but he, so he needed to find something else, some other way to make people feel bought in, to make people feel like they were part of the business. Um, so basically what he did was take, you know, he first of all spent a lot of time educating the people he hired, opening up the books, explaining to them how it worked, explaining the finances, explaining, you know, the business that he was operating. And then in the end, he ended up literally like taking, you know, for every quarter he would take, he would say, okay, here's the work that we have agreed to do here's the amount of money we have to spend on labor. I want you all to decide how much, how many hours you want to work to complete the labor, how many, like, you know, what days of the week you want to work, how often you want the plan to be operating, whether we need to hire more people because you'd rather work fewer hours, you know, whether you'd rather work really hard and really efficiently and then raise everyone's hourly rate or whether you'd rather like have a little bit more of a laid back pace for everyone's health and well-being, And then just everyone just like takes a little bit of a hit monetarily but like you know he's still sole owner of that business he is it's very it, there's still a hierarchy within the organization but like to me that is the kind of like little step that like it worked just perfect for him he's never had he still has all the original employees he hired from eight years ago so like he has completely eliminated turnover basically in his organization and he and he's created this like really well-trained bought in staff that like likes working there and and feels like they've been invested in as individuals and they're not owners they're like they're they're it's not a cooperative it's they're just they were just empowered right that's why i think it's not necessarily you know ownership is certainly i think kind of the the purest form of empowerment but there's other kind of steps you can take along the way to empowerment and i think a lot of people have familiarity with those kind of things because you know people who at the end of their career sell their business to their employees, you know, you spend 10 or 15 years training your managers to know how to do that, um, to know how to take over the business. So 
yeah, all of that to say, I think the transition is kind of a mindset transition. I think it takes time and I think it takes customization to, to a, a farm owner's management style to, you know, what they're looking for in terms of goals and output. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, there's lots of little ways to do it. There's lots of little steps to take along the road to like accessible, affordable food. There's lots of little steps to take on the road to employee empowerment. And there's lots of little steps to take on the road to like more environmentally beneficial operating. Like you do not have to go full on regen cold Turkey overnight where it's like all only perennials and integrated livestock. Like there's a lot, you can, you can like transition towards that. And yeah, I think part of the reason why that is a, a idea that is challenging for people sometimes is because agriculture is so full of black and white. So full of like, this is the right way to do it and everything else is the wrong way. And like, if you're not doing it the right way, then you're a sellout or you're a big ag stooge or whatever. You're, some, you're something bad because this is the only right way. And that's just, we have to stop thinking about that. We have to stop thinking that way about farming. Definitely. Yeah. Coming to mind are uh, elements of our dominant culture and that um, black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking is definitely there. That is a hard one to shift. Um, I loved your example about this, this farm that has a single owner and yet is bringing in elements of self-organizing, that empowerment that you speak about. Um, the, the workers were able to decide how much time they wanted to work and how much they were earning. And, and that goes so far in terms of buy-in or believing in that model and his retention of employees speaks to that. Um, totally. I, and you're speaking about steps towards something is a big piece of the mindset shift. And how do we remind ourselves of that? How do we make those steps more visible? Uh, because the, the unconscious habit is to revert to that all or nothing or that sense of urgency like this is where I know I want to be and it needs to happen now <laughs> which is impossible um, so that's something uh, sort of a collective question around how do we keep these small steps in mind and visible and what are they and who do they fit for so <laughs> Totally. Yeah. It reminds me of, I talked to one of the farmers that I talked to in the book, Randy Woodley, uh, who farms in Oregon. I, one of the really transformative things for my thinking that he said to me during our first conversa conversation was um, that all dichotomies are false. That like, there's just, there's just never, whenever someone presents you with like two options, just know that there's way more than there's always more than two options. There's never just two options. So like when someone tries to present you with a dichotomy, figure out why they're leaving out all those other ones. Like what, how does it serve them to make you believe that there's only two ways to do things? Um, yeah, which I think is a really, it, that was really valuable for me in terms of my thinking. Um, but yeah, and I think to, the, to that example uh, from the farmer in North Carolina, I think one of the biggest kind of small mindset shifts that he had was realizing that his employees were valuable. That's a hard thing for people to, to conceptualize in agriculture. One, because, right, as I said earlier, because I think small family farmers themselves are encouraged to believe that their own labor is not valuable. That's how you can work 100 hours a week and believe that it's fine that you don't draw a salary. Like, when you know what you're doing is really important and valuable, you don't accept that, like, you don't get compensated for it. 
um, or you can accept that you don't get compensated for it. Uh, and then I think that kind of the fact that that you know challenge of accepting that labor in agriculture is valuable kind of spreads out from that point where if it's like, well, if my labor is not valuable, then you're then like my workers labor labor is definitely not valuable. So I definitely shouldn't pay for them. And I definitely, you know, should just find whatever labor is cheapest and like, oh, you know, maybe the maybe folks that I've worked with are unmotivated or bad or whatever. We didn't click. I didn't get into agriculture to be a manager. I hear that so often from farm people, uh, from farmers in particular, but running a business is usually about being a manager. So, uh, you know, I think part of that, part of the mind shift, mind shifts is, you know, in other parts of the economy, there's this idea that a business's most important asset is its workers. I think agriculture really needs to internalize that. And, you know, I think part of that is built into the very language. I think, especially in the U.S., agriculture labor is by definition unskilled, which is just not correct. We know that anyone who's ever farmed knows that there's a lot of skill involved and that it's very geographically based. It's very crop based. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of just like know how that you only get from being from doing the work for a lot for an extended period of time. Um, and yeah, and the idea that just because like the labor of your body is involved in the work, it necessarily has to be unskilled. That's when people realize that, oh, you know, the people who work in my farm are skilled people, that is transformative for them. Definitely. It's interesting. The, the, the other side of that, to use a dichotomy, is that um, people who share their experiences of starting, starting to garden for themselves and grow their own food say, oh my gosh, it is so much work. I just can't do that. I, I'm happy to like support the farmer's market and and purchase food that's grown by farmers. Um, and so there is an acknowledgement of how much energy, labor, skill, knowledge it takes, and yet there is a disconnect there. Um, so one of the pieces in your book was making it very clear that farms are businesses. And the, that's a tough one with the myth um, because farming is also like a calling or a passion and and so money doesn't matter like that's irrelevant and I think that makes it uh, a bit murky in terms of shifting to seeing it as a business um, I'm just going to weave together a couple of things um, you, you mentioned big team farming as something that circles back to a more collective and community focused way of living um, and so there's a relational piece there there's the relationships between people in the system and relationships between people in the land. Um, and you highlight that farms are not consumers. They are businesses and need to see themselves as that. Um, so in hearing big team farming being described, like I do see some alignment with cooperative values and principles. And as a business model, I'm wondering how you see the co-op model playing a role with big team farming, if, if you've seen some examples of formalized co-ops operating. Yeah, I think co-ops are one of the most accessible ways to get into kind of collective work in agriculture, mostly just because it's a, it's a relatively well-trodden path. Um, you know, I think it's worth 
talking about the distinction quickly here at the top, we talk a lot about cooperatives in agriculture. There are existing cooperatives in agriculture. There are existing cooperatives in agriculture that are Fortune 100 companies. Uh, so there are two main functions of existing agricultural cooperatives. They're either buying groups or selling groups. So either it's it's a group of farmers that has come together to like pool their purchases to get a discount on inputs, generally chemicals, or they're selling groups where uh, Horizon Organic comes to mind as like a all these farmers don't want to sell milk directly on their own and have to do the processing and marketing. So they join a cooperative and the cooperative buys your product from you and then handles the marketing and distribution on their end. Those are the exist the, the big kind of existing forms of cooperatives. Um, I see a lot of people in the kind of small, scrappy, edgy farm space uh, trying to get into more employee cooperatives, which is kind of the big thing that is, I would say, missing at any kind of significant scale in agriculture right now, which is, you know, rather than the companies, whether rather than independent companies coming together, which is what those two first versions were, this is the employees of the company owning the company itself uh, and being all, you know, owners and operators. Um, I think there's a lot of good in that model. I think it works really well, I, especially as compared to the other two. I talk a little bit in the book about the challenge of, for example, selling cooperatives, um, which are have been a powerful part of the conversation in the past because it allows people to say, to it technically, hypothetically allows people to stay small and independent as farms and not have to do the sales and marketing and logistics and kind of that harder part of the equation and, and lets them focus more on just like kind of the production and the technical aspects. But the challenge there is the cooperative, it like it faces commodity pressure usually and is eventually over time pushes its price down as low as it can, the price that it pays farmers because it needs to spend money on marketing and logistics and all of those things kind of in its business. And eventually, you know, maybe people in the cooperative, there's a lot of defection that happens, right? People in the cooperative realize if I could just go around the co-op straight to the customers, or if I could get out of the co-op and compete, you know, find some other way to access this market, then I don't have to pay the cooperative fee. I can sell and then pocket what the cooperative is currently taking. And they often kind of fall apart because the underlying necessity of a cooperative is that it everyone in the cooperative has a common interest in maintaining the cooperative. As soon as people, but but for independent small family farmers, of course, their primary motive is to protect their small family farm at all costs. And so if stabbing the cooperative in the back or getting out of the cooperative or, or you know, undermining the cooperative in whatever way helps you keep your family farm, that would make sense to do, um, which is a real challenge that I think people have who have tried to use cooperatives, you know, to add smaller, more regional scales. Um, but employee cooperatives circumvent that, right? Because everyone who is an it, part of an employee cooperative does is has shared motivation to keep the business in operation because everyone's an owner and everyone's a uh, you know an employee. And so if the business falls apart, then you don't have work anymore, and the business you own has is has disappeared. So I think employee-owned cooperatives are a powerful tool for small family farms I, or to transform the kind of small family farm system. Um, they can be hard to set up. They can be, it's just challenging, right? It, you know, I know a farm in California who's working through the process right now, even with just 
three and a half, four employees kind of participating in setting up the original structure. Uh, it'll take them more than a year. They had to like get a grant to pay a lawyer to help them build kind of the legal structure. And then at the end of the day, you know, everyone still needs to come up. People who have been professional farm workers making relatively low wages their whole life are going to have to try and come up with, you know, a few thousand dollars to, to pay for like an ownership stake in the cooperative. That's very hard. And, you know, there's a lot of space for maybe nonprofit work there, for policy support there, for um, people who are interested in helping, you know, as a farmer maybe comes to the end of their career and is interested in selling the business because they don't have children who want to come back, you know, can they sell it to their employees? Can they, can, you know, people help their employees like gain the funds they need to be able to take over the business? That's a great opportunity. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's proven hard to set up big employee cooperatives in agriculture um, in part because I think just the, the existing difficulties of the system um, and because it's everywhere hard to set up cooperatives in America. We don't really have a lot of very strong sense of like uh, fellow feeling with other workers. We've really, since the 1980s, like extinguished our idea of like, oh, workers can unionize. Oh, workers can have power in the workplace. Oh, workers can be owners. We've we've said no, none of that. So I think that's starting to change and I'm like getting hope from, from things I see in the news and from the way that I think younger generations think about work and ownership and a lot of different things, but cooperative employee-owned cooperatives in agriculture are still slow starting. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it it's a combination of like shifting a mindset and way of being. And it also bumps up against structural pieces um, and just there aren't as many co-ops as there are the dominant business structures and the systems have been set up to support setting those up. It's pretty streamlined, I would say straightforward and um, setting up a co-op. It does take time and energy from what I've been hearing um, that time and energy is also around the relational piece so that when challenges are coming up, um, there's that foundation. And so working through some, some difficult times, ups and downs um, can, can happen. It, it needs ongoing time and attention though. Totally. To so much that. emotional maturity required. You know, I think land is loaded emotionally psychologically everyone has just so like all of us right we're all part of a colonial society we all have some kind of trauma wrapped up in who has land and who doesn't who gets to call a place home and who doesn't and that is the foundation on which you build an agricultural cooperative and cooperatives just in general have like right they're democracies they're inherently going to have conflicts they're going to be disagreements they're going to have to be negotiations and compromises and all of that stuff is very hard built on top of that you know challenge of land and land-based trauma and then add into that the fact that agriculture is very unequal in terms of representation for people of color women non-binary people, um, really any group that is not <laughs> middle-aged white men, and working through all of that in those settings. And then, you know, I think a final big piece is just 
there has, because of the myths, because of the way that we talk about agriculture and the way that we set it out there as a dream and a goal that people have, part of the challenge is that people who are attracted to that dream are often people who are, were drawn to it because of the promise of independence, drawn to it because of the promise of not having to balance other people's opinions of not having to like work closely with people. It's like the promise of the small family farm in American mythology is you are the king of your own castle. This land is yours to control as you want. And you can do, and and you aren't responsible, right? That's where the libertarianism in it comes from is, is like, you know, here, no one can control what you do. And the idea of a cooperative is you don't get to do anything unless we all agree. <laughs> And that is, I think those just really clash in there and it takes a lot of reflection and patience and emotional maturity to be able to take all of that baggage and challenge and come out with a cooperative that where people are excited to work. Yeah, there are so many layers, so many layers. Um, and I think um, there are people who are taking those steps to face each of those layers and and build those relationships and I think it's also um like a counter to that dominant cultural piece around things happening quickly and um I mean we need to be thinking more long range how how do we take care of each other this land that grows food that nourishes us um start to shift some of the uh do the healing that's needed yeah. Yeah. That that time horizon question is huge and I think it's very challenging. And one of I think it it feeds into people's excitement and enthusiasm is wonderful and I love it. I love to see it in in new and beginning farmers. But the idea that it's, you know, I think to one of the ways that entrepreneur are like whatever brand of entrepreneurialism that we have becomes a bit of a problem is there's this expectation that like, you know, you just really hustle and grind for like a, a little while, you know, some number of years, but not your whole life. And then you'll get to a place where you can kind of take a step back and relax a little more and you'll be in the groove and figure it out. Agriculture needs a mindset where you say like, I need to grow slowly. I need to find ways to make that. I can't, build a business that doesn't work financially now, but maybe in 10 years it will. That works in other sectors, but it's really hard to make that work in agriculture unless you have, like other sectors do, VC funding or something like that, you know, nonprofit status. Um, you know, otherwise if you're using personal savings, personal financing, um, and your own labor and the labor of your family, maintaining losses for 10 years is not going to go the way it went for Google. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I think that is part of the challenge is just like thinking, you know, which is, it's so hard, right? Because, because climate change makes it feel like we don't have time to go slow. So every pressure in our society tells us like, you can't take your time. You have like, it has to, there has to be a solution right now. It has to be figured out right now. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what the antidote for that is, but but nothing that lasts is made quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, so figuring out how to go, how to go slow is like part of the part, a whole challenge in and of itself. <laughs> Definitely. Um, 
I, I'm going to segue a little bit to your next book. Um, and it's focusing entirely on big team farms, I believe. Yes. And I'm curious if you can share one or two key points that we can look forward to in, in your next book. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that I've announced this publicly, but I am happy to say here. So I, the working title of the new book is people farm. Um, which I'm excited about, uh, growing farms differently. And yes, it is very focused. It's basically like, I just mentioned big team farms, like basically right at the end of, um, farm and other F words, this book is going to be all about big team farms, examples of, you know, ones that are operating today. You can read the full story of that, uh, North Carolina farm and what he's doing, um, as well as other farms, you know, who are doing, we're really focusing on the customer food affordability part or the environmental regenerative part or the, the labor empowerment part. Um, you know, not to undercut my whole deal, but I will say, I think one of the key points, uh, that I have taken away during the research phase and especially getting a little bit of a chance to get back out there this summer in the like six weeks when we thought things were going to start getting better, <laughs> um, was that big team farms is like one of the better solutions I've seen. Seems like a, you know, a good framework to start with. It's hard no one's out there just like figuring it out super easy. Just like, you know, snap your fingers and it's a thing. That's just, that is, is not the case. Things are hard. And what is pragmatic is never as clean as the theory. Right. And I think in agriculture, fascinatingly, in a very bizarre way, theory and pragmatism are very rapidly moving away from each other. <laughs> Like what people are actually making work on their farms and what everyone like believes that farms should be doing in any way are just like, it's crazy how fast and far they're moving away from each other. But so, yeah, I think that's one of the key points is just like, you know, I think some of the feedback I got about the last book was, especially in the last chapter, it felt a little rose colored glasses, um, you know, idealized. I'm not afraid to look at all the warts and wrinkles that are big team farms because there are plenty. Um, but, you know, I think it's also part of the fun of this, of working on this, working in this space and doing this research and being able to talk to all these people is just that, you know, I, I guess I got to be the person who wrote the book, but like, these are not my ideas. I, I people are out there working on this stuff and figuring out how to, how to live these values and, internalize this stuff and you know for all different reasons I one of my favorites um is you know talking to a big conventional farmer in Nebraska who um is looking to get out of the conventional crops and and make a more diverse kind of customer focused business and build a brand and do all these really cool things and literally his motivation is just like I'm lonely nobody lives in my town and I just like want to hang out with more people and I want to farm and I like it, but it, I'd rather, I'd rather have friends than be rich. Um, so, you know, that is transforming people's pe people's mindsets are getting transformed for all kinds of different reasons. And it means they're coming to different conclusions and thinking of different new good ideas, a lot of which I would have never thought of. Um, so yeah, I guess maybe a, a good takeaway seems to be taking shape that if someone is out there saying like, here's the full completed, ready-made solution, I figured it out, maybe be skeptical about that because the solution changes all the time and people are figuring it out, figuring out how to, you know, take some, some basic principles and priorities and apply it to their situation and, and make it work. And 
that's what's so cool about this work. And that's what to me, like, is kind of what big team farms are all about, right? It's about finding, it's about just saying, like, I will not be bound to the ideal of a farm. I will build a farm business that I want. Like, I will make it look the way I want it to. I will have it, have the employees I want. I will give them the ownership I want. I will, you know, have the team sell the products, do the things the way that, you know, helps me build the life I want to build. And that that is even part of the conversation is exciting because for a long time, it wasn't. We just reduced farmers to a caricature of someone who cares more about land than anything else. And it's like, now farmers are people with complex Mm -hmm. identities and beliefs and wants and desires. And that's great. We should remember that. Yeah, there's a lot to celebrate in that. It's it's really fascinating, all the different elements that farmers carry within them. So they need to be fully present. And um, I appreciate the honesty that you bring in the stories that you're sharing. And, and that's, I think, part of the transformation is um, not allowing these um, subconscious myths and narratives to persist. Um, so I'm looking forward to the next book. Um, is will there be pre-order for it? Um, expected release date? Expected release date is early, like May 1st-ish of 2022. Somehow next year is already 2022. Um, pre-orders will be available sometime in March if people follow me on Twitter at Sarah underscore K underscore mock. Um, or you can sign, I do a weekly newsletter that's been on hiatus for a little while, but it'll be back by the time this airs. Um, at big team farms at Substack. So yeah, there will be announcements in there for pre-orders as well. And then after May 1st, it'll be available wherever books are sold. Excellent. Um, I, I'm wanting to close um, riffing on something that you included on your dedication page for farm and other F words. And uh, it was an invitation to the reader. May you too find the F words that help you carry on and I was, I'm inviting you to share one or two F words that help you carry on. Ooh, I mean, the big one comes to mind that is implied always, but I assume that maybe we want to keep this not keep an clean. explicit <laughs> podcast. Yeah. So, I mean, family is a big one for me. Uh, I'm very close with my family. I don't live in Wyoming anymore, which is where they are, but um, I go back often because I, I miss them. Uh, friends. And then also, funnily enough, food. I came back to do all of this stuff. Like one of the things that brought me back into agriculture after I left was just that, you know, when I thought about what is like real in the world, like what makes me happy, what brings me joy regularly, it's just food. I just like to eat and nothing else feels as real or special as food does. And, you know, I think we often couch discussions of agriculture in food, which I think is a mistake because I think the food system and the farm system have different problems that need to be addressed differently. And you can't address them all. And like, again, there's no silver bullet. Like there's no way to like fix all the problems in one, in one go, but man, food is great. Isn't it? It's like the main good thing about being alive. So good. Yep. (laughs) I agree. Oh, thank you so much for gifting your time and sharing um, more information about your book and your next book. And it's been a lovely conversation with you. Thank you. I was, it was so excited to be here. I'm always happy to talk. 
Okay, that's it for now. So here's my four-year-old son, Levon, reading bits from the Organic Management and Principles Manual. 7.2.11.1 Belts shall be made of food-grade materials. 